Hello, and welcome to the second season of Revise, Rebut, and Resubmit, a podcast that explores early career researchers' experiences in publishing their first academic paper, and which celebrates this important milestone. My name is Jennifer Fitchett, and I'm an Associate Professor of Physical Geography at the University of the Witwatersrand in South Africa, an avid science communicator, and a still, I would argue, relatively young academic with a passion for breaking down the barriers and unnecessary mysticism in the publication process. Each episode, I interview a new person on their journey in writing, revising, rebutting, and resubmitting their first academic paper to publish their first piece of peer-reviewed work. This podcast is very generously supported by Genus, the DSI NRF Center of Excellence for Paleosciences. When Dr. Adrian van Avalt registered for his PhD by publication in 2017, he was undertaking to complete his first degree in English. Until then, he had only studied and published academic research in Afrikaans. As you can tell from his title, he was successful. So successful, indeed, that he passed with very minor revisions and published four papers from his PhD. Adrian is currently working as a senior lecturer in the Department of Geography at the University of the Free State serves on the editorial board of the International Journal of Biometrology, and is the mentee associate editor, Earth and Environment, for the South African Journal of Science. He has published in some of the top local and international journals, including the South African Journal of Science, the South African Geographical Journal, Theoretical and Applied Climatology, and the International Journal of Climatology. So while many, many students, both in South Africa and across the world, have had to study in a language that is not their first language, I think that this is a very exciting journey and a very exciting person to hear from. Welcome, Adrian, and thanks for joining us on this podcast. Thank you, Jennifer. So I think the first question is about the decisions that you made at the various different levels of study, your undergraduate, your honors, your master's, and then your PhD, how you made the decision of where to study. And then related to that, of course, is the decision on what language to study in. And how that then led to you making this really bold decision that you would do your first degree in English as your PhD. Well, yes. So when I completed my honours and masters, so my honours and my masters and my undergrad was in Afrikaans. Also, the University of the Free State where I studied was also Afrikaans. So I was encouraged to do my undergrad in Afrikaans. And yes, I'm Afrikaans speaking. So by honours and masters, I realised that I need to, yes, do my honours and masters, but it was difficult actually for me to do my honours and masters in Afrikaans because I, I always think in Afrikaans and now to take the English literature and to convert it to Afrikaans. It was difficult. There's certain terms in English that can't be translated in Afrikaans. So, yes, I was encouraged to do my PhD in English, given that I'm in academia. But I really struggled with that. But luckily, I found a topic and a supervisor who was actually very encouraging. And, yeah, um, I really enjoyed it. It was also difficult for me because I was thinking Afrikaans and now uh, converting 
uh, English to Afrikaans and trying to make that sense. So, yeah, I actually now, nowadays, I play it by ear when I try to translate the or English or write in English. So, yes. I think you're raising a really interesting point about how the majority of literature is written in English. And so if you are studying in another language, whatever language that might be anywhere in the world, that you're in this strange position where you're trying to read material in one language and then write essays or tests or later on dissertations in a different language. And so that there's no way of getting around the translation component that even if you are doing your degree in your own language, that some of your material won't be in your own language. Yeah, that is true. And yeah, uh, there's not a lot of Afrikaans. There's, I know, uh, only of two academic journals in Afrikaans. And one of my publications was actually also in Afrikaans. But I found it easier to do it in English, given that you also mentioned all the literature is English. So uh, it was a difficult time and I must also say that when you do a PhD or even an article in your second language you also need not to punish yourself with your first or second attempt or even your third or fourth attempt there's going to be some issues and there was also very many issues in my PhD and you can even yeah sometimes my English is not that good after a long day when I taught in English or like did a lecture in English or wrote a, a lot of emails, then my English is just on. I don't know <laughs> what, to, what to say, what to do. And then, yeah, my, it's just a completely shut down. As I always tell you, Adrian, your English is always a hundred times better than my Afrikaans. And I think that those of us who are English first language don't recognize the huge privilege that we have for the fact that we have always read in English, we have always written in English, and that it makes the whole process so much faster for us, that we aren't constantly trying to find the equivalent word or translate a word or think about the grammar and the sentence construction. So I really think that you should be a lot kinder with yourself because you have done exceptionally well in in writing in English. But I have two questions for you. The first one, and I don't know if you'll remember this, but at what point in your undergrad studying in Afrikaans, did you have to start reading texts in English as required readings or when you were writing essays or anything like that? How, how many years of study did you manage to get through where there were textbooks in Afrikaans or where all of the, the required readings were in Afrikaans before you had to start this process of translating? Well, if I remember correctly, <laughs> all our material in our undergrad was in Afrikaans, whereas in honours it was mainly English, but also the presentations was in Afrikaans. So, yeah, then in my honours, and yeah, there's actually, there was a time that I need to make the shift because I did my undergrad in Africa, so now if I want to continue with academia, I needed to make the change from English to Af uh, from Afrikaans to English. But the problem was that time I was actually discouraged to do my masters, and even yeah, at that time I was thinking of a PhD, but yeah, I was encouraged to do it in Afrikaans. I think 
given that the situation of the campus. But yeah, I think it was actually in a sense negative to me and it actually did not improve my academic writing and reading. But yeah, luckily I pursued my PhD in English and yeah, now I can say I, I'm confident in my writing, not always my speaking, but my writing, yes. Yeah, I think you write very, very well. And one of the things I think contributes to that is you started on quite a different topic when it came to your PhD. And it meant that all of the terminology that you were working with was terminology that you were assimilating from the literature in English, and then you were writing about in English. Because I imagine that it's quite a process to try and find the translated terms for scientific terminology. You know, we know so much of our translation happens around social settings and the types of words we're exposed to. But if you, you know, I'm trying to think through all sorts of words that we deal with. Biometrology, what on earth would that be in Afrikaans? What would a heat wave or a cold snap or a tropical temperate trough be? So perhaps that's something you want to reflect on a bit is in a sense, having a, a scientific dictionary or a geography dictionary that translates for you between Afrikaans and English. Yeah, yeah, that's very funny, actually. I got a, a request from a colleague of mine in Stellenbosch. Um, his daughter is doing a project in Afrikaans on the climate change, but also how it will affect the temperature and rainfall in their specific area. And it was in Afrikaans. And just then when I got that request, I looked back at all my my honours and my masters and even my PhD. And, and it's sad to say, <laughs> I always have a dictionary on my desk, but sad to say, sometimes I actually used Google Translate and that was not always the correct thing to do, just to make sense of, especially terms in English was not always clear to me. There's some colloquial words that I used in my thesis and also in my writing. So I needed to Google that and see what it was in English and also in Afrikaans just to make sense of it all. So yes, it's quite difficult, but also what I must say is you, when you struggle to write, you reading just a fiction book or non-fiction book will also help you with the whole wording of a sentence, what needs to be in a sentence. So, yes, I read a lot just to make sense. And then also yours, especially our article or thesis, what kind of words do they use, what common words is in a scientific writing. So I have my arsenal on my computer. If I struggle with a word, just go have look and then see if I can use it in a sentence. I think that's important even for English language speakers, that academic language is not the language that we read in novels. It's not the language that we speak to our family, to our neighbors, to our communities. And I think creating, as you say, an arsenal of words, of phrases, of sentences is so important because it's really easy to write in a manner where reviewers will come back and say that our writing is too colloquial or to phrase things in a way that creates ambiguity in terms of the level of certainty about scientific results. And 
in some ways, I think it's something that second language, or in some cases for people, it's their third or fourth or fifth language, but that second language speakers go into it knowing that they don't know the language. And so it's a very deliberate approach to learning the terminology and learning how we phrase things. Whereas if we've grown up speaking English, I think we can quite easily be lazy on that front. And we don't know how to build up the capacity to to learn a new language and to see academic language as a different language, to keep a notebook of terms that are good to use in specific circumstances or alternate words to use if we've overused a term too often or if we've used a term that's too colloquial. So I think they're really important lessons that extend to anyone who's doing academic writing in what you're saying here. But I wanted to pick up on Google Translate. I think it's in David Adger's Language Unlimited that I was reading about the development of of Google Translate and how platforms like that have improved over time. And what's really interesting is where it struggles is in terms of grammatical structure and syntax. But where I think it does very well is when you're trying to look up individual words, because then you're not trying to build up a sentence. You're not trying to put things in the right order. You just want a single word. And of course, there are many memes that circulate on the internet about the the failures of Google Translate. I, I saw one which was about a bicycle spoke on the wheel. And my Afrikaans is terrible, but it was it was translated to Afrikaans and it was as though the bicycle had spoken instead of <laughs> the spoke of the wheel. But I think it is a really useful tool and we need to use the kinds of tools that are available to us. And I think it does us a disservice to say, uh, Grammarly is a cheat or don't use Google Translate or don't use the, th- the thesaurus on Word. Um, if we go back in time, people would carry around physical thesauruses and dictionaries. Mm-hmm. And I think this is just using technology to improve that process of looking up an individual word that you can just do it with a bit more ease. And so the trick there is learning the limitations of, of these different kinds of platforms. So perhaps that's something you'd like to reflect on is where you found limitations in the types of tools that are commonly available to students or that we're encouraged to use. Everything from referencing tools through to Grammarly, through to Google Translate, and maybe there are others that I'm not thinking about. Yes, no, funny enough, I used Google Translate last week. And it was actually very interesting that I found that the use of words actually expanded or the translation of the words expanded when I started with my honours and my master's. So uh, I think they um, also also expanded a bit on the different terminologies, like you also mentioned. And then also what I used was VIA. It's actually Afrikaans app that you can translate also they give you a translation or meaning of the word if you translate it and yes it's a whole different arsenal and I must say I use the thesaurus on word on a regular basis just to if I don't understand a word in a in the document or how to phrase it or even if it's just a synonym so if I don't know that word, then it's there. So yeah, usually I would go to my dictionary on my desk, but yeah, now it's there. And even if I actually also what I Google the word, I just Google a word and then also find the meaning of it if I don't understand it. I also I use Grammarly 
what Grammarly actually was a problem for me during my PhD, it did not include a verb, so it wasn't a sentence. So I use it nowadays just to see if the sentence reads well or if the spelling is not correct. So I use those tools because it's there. I, maybe it's not academically or scientifically that you might use it, but it's there. You have that tool, so why not use it to improve your writing? So you know, nowadays I use all those different tools, but I play it by ear. I read the sentence out loud so that I can hear if it makes sense or not. So yeah, we have that tools available. And I think given that it's my second language, why not use it? Absolutely. And I think it's such a trap to say that uh, this tool or that tool is not academic enough or not scientific enough. If it helps you in writing a paper that's accepted in a top international scientific journal, then I'd say it's pretty scientific. But you raise a very important point about playing it by ear and literally playing it by ear, listening to the sentences and checking whether you agree with the suggestions that are being made by thesaurus, by Grammarly, by dictionary, and thinking about how that relates to what you've been reading, whether it's a novel or a scientific paper or another student's dissertation. And I think that really critical thought about how you're approaching sentence construction and the choice of words and what you want to convey is really, really important. Yes, if I write an article or even a sentence or an email, it takes me maybe five, ten minutes just to make sure that I send it out in a correct format. So it takes me longer, but I know it actually helps me to be more accurate. And I know what I sent out is top-notch. So it, I, I try to be more accurate in my language, not even oh, if I, I practice sometimes when I do presentations even beforehand just to make sense of what I'm saying and if it's correct. I think, again, it's something that's a necessity for you, but it's something that we should all do, ideally. I think, again, it's a laziness that comes from working in your first language that it is possible to just stand up and give a presentation or it is possible to just quickly type an email and send it. That how many times do we send emails where we say see attached and we forget to attach something? And now, thank goodness, our emails tell us, did you mean to attach something before you send? But we make so many mistakes and we don't pay enough attention to the correct wording in our emails or the tone of our emails. I can think over the past week of how many things could have been simpler if everyone just slowed down to think about what they were saying in an email. And I think the process of translating enforces that, but it's really very good practice that we should all be doing. Yeah, definitely. What just frustrates me is the time. So it takes more time for me to compile an email or type an email or even write a paper. I need to think about what I'm trying to say and how I convey the message. I like to write in English before I did not do it, but now I'm confident in what I'm saying. How do I put the information forward? And what I you know, learned is also be more concise in your writing. It's not necessary to put it in additionally or all that stuff, all those conjunctions, I believe. But yeah, it's just be more concise in your writing. And that's what this also helped me, the whole process of writing, reading, and speaking in a second language. Absolutely. 
And now that you are working as a senior lecturer, you're supervising all the way through to PhD, um, what are you doing in terms of language? So what language are you supervising in? What language are your students writing in? And how are you finding the process of reading work and giving commentary on work that is being written up in English? So everything is in English. Yeah, especially with my students. I like to read through this stuff. Given I know where they're coming from, in they're also writing in their second language, most of them. So I also have that empathy with them when they write. So I know how to assist them in the academic writing. I usually give them certain pieces just to read and also then interpret before we start even with their writing so that I can assist them. I know I have a, I have a few articles now behind me. So um, I know what I want from them and your practice uh, makes perfect. So we go through a draft a few times so that they also know what to do, what to expect, the academic language, the phrases. Yes, so it feels like with every student, I also learn from them and improve my language. Absolutely. And I think even where somebody's language needs improvement we can learn so much from the types of errors that they make and seeing those patterns in grammatical structure and thinking about why it differs from how we would say it out loud or how we would normally write it and really critically thinking about whether that sentence works in a way that perhaps doesn't feel as comfortable. I think that Linguistics is fascinating, and particularly the types of, of linguistics that are used in scientific works and how we try to convey information where we are trying to not only tell a story, but also create this very clear indication of how certain we are about something or how uncertain we might be, what the level of error is, where we are convinced of causation or whether we're not convinced. And those are things that really require an engagement with language that, as you say, you need to go over a couple of times. There needs to be a few iterations to make quite sure that we're telling an accurate story and one that we'd be happy to reread back in a couple of years' time. Definitely. I give my students and even myself just they need to take a piece of work and read the work and then also portray that so to the public so that they can actually just see how to write in layman's terms but still communicate that scientific results. So yeah, that also helped me a lot, even in my scientific academic writing and when I write a piece for the newspaper. So it makes me more confident in my writing. You raise a very important point about science communication, and I think that's where we often have to translate back again, because one of the real benefits of living in a country with 11 official languages and having people who are working in the sciences who speak at least one, if not more, of those languages is that we can reach a much broader public. Um, if you are listening to the radio in your second language and now people are talking about science, it can be quite challenging to be interested and in, to keep up with it. But when you hear somebody speaking on the radio in your own language and they're explaining science to you, I think there's much greater scope for engagement. So perhaps as my last question is talking about 
going through the process of a PhD in English and learning to write from scratch in English rather than translating. And then getting to the end of your PhD and writing some really important papers that attracted a lot of media attention, some of which was in Afrikaans. And you gave some interviews in Afrikaans. So I'd be interested to hear about your experience of then translating back to your home language in communicating that to the public. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes it was actually very difficult to do that because now you know, I was thinking in English and now, like you mentioned, now I must revert back to Afrikaans. So what I did with all my interviews, I actually asked the questions beforehand and then I then I answered the questions in English and then I translated it terms. Also, I wrote all the terms down on a piece of paper so that I know what the terms are in Afrikaans. So, yeah, that was also a thing to adapt to because now my English is in, yeah, it's different in my writing. It's better than Afrikaans. So now I, I always, always practice and you are you know, also thinking now, I must say, in Afrikaans and English now. So it's always a good thing. I, I actually push myself or challenge myself nowadays uh, reading Afrikaans book again, a novel. So, yeah, I think we must try to convey the message in our own home language and even our second language. So to improve ourselves, not to stagnate and just do one language. I know academic language is English, but... You still need to, we have 11 languages, so you still need to convey that message either in your first or your second language. Absolutely. And I think while there is a large amount of literature that's written in English, there's also a huge amount of literature that's still written in Mandarin. And there are a number of, of countries which will all have their own language journals as well. And we are missing out on so much for the fact that uh, we are so stuck in one language. Um, and I think it is incredible to be able to read everything that's written in these Afrikaans journals and to be able to see the, the new research directions there, but also to be able to engage with people who are doing science, but not in academic institutions. So in the free state, the number of farmers who are doing really innovative work around dust and windstorms and climate change, they're all engaging with science. But it's not in an academic institution and the way that they're engaging and they're communicating that is in, likely in most cases in Afrikaans. Yeah, definitely. Especially the Landbewerkblatt or that magazine, the farmers, like he's mentioned, do a lot of the interesting research. They are recording temperatures, rainfall, what they see in the environment, and they're all recorded in in the Landbewerkblatt, and then it is mostly conveyed in Afrikaans newspapers or even in the journals. And, and I found in the Afrikaans journals, there's a lot of different and interesting research that has been done. But yeah, and I think we as second language, or you have a second language of your first language is Afrikaans, or you know, like you mentioned Mandarin, I think you owe it to that language to maybe contribute that language in a sort of way, in any way, academically, or even just conveying the message or the reason that you're doing. So the language is still there and hopefully it's not going to go away. So we need to 
give that information out there, even if it's in English or in Afrikaans. I agree completely. So to finish off, is there any piece of advice that you would give to your younger self, maybe when you were in grade seven and you were heading into high school or you were in matric and you were heading into first year university about how you would have perhaps approached language differently, knowing what you now know, holding this PhD? Well, I would definitely tell myself, open your mind to English. It's not that bad language. (laughs) Your second language. Uh, Yeah, I would, if what I know now, I would definitely tell myself, do your undergrad and your honours and your masters in English, especially in the direction where I'm now in academia. I feel like, yes, I did this journey and I did my undergrads in Afrikaans and now I did my PhD in in English, in my second language. So, yeah, I tell myself, just keep going. Don't just think, okay, I will do it in my first language. Just broaden your mind, broaden your horizons. And yes, continue, practice, read more. Yes, that's my advice. I think it's very good advice. And I think it's also worth us reflecting on the fact that Although you would go back and tell yourself to to study in English from undergraduate, that there's a huge amount that you've gained from going the route that you have gone. And it's meant that you have published in Afrikaans language journals, that you're reading those papers, you're aware of them, that you're able to engage with a community of farmers, of people who are communicating very similar issues around climate change, and you're able to engage with that. So I think although we all would look back and we all want to tell ourselves that we should have done things differently, I think there's great value to the, to the route that you did take and to the fact that you've now got the best of both worlds. You've got the ability to really operate in a professional manner in two different languages. And that's certainly something I can't do. Yeah, I hate you sp- your, your Afrikaans. is very good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> because you've never had me try and form a sentence. My brain literally, we had the thing at school. Subject, then the little verb that sat at the top, then time, object, manner, place, uh, little verb, infinitive. And even then I'm going, was that little verb up there or not? <laughs> and I have to think that way. If I try and compose a sentence, I'm much slower than your any English sentence you'd write because I'm literally running through in my head, subject, verb, time, infinitive, whatever. And then I, th- I think to myself, what even is an infinitive? Do I know what an infinitive is? What is the object? What is the subject? And those are questions I never ask myself with English. So I am <laughs> so impressed that you wrote a PhD thesis that came back with minor revisions and no revisions from one examiner. You've published these four papers from your PhD and many, many more to come. And I think it's really inspirational to people who are starting the journey in their second language to hear about how far you can come and the challenges that you face, but how you've overcome them developing this arsenal of tools and tricks. So thank you so much for sharing this. Thank you that I can be here. And to everybody, good luck. Stay determined and you will see, you will get the results. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revise, Rebut and Resubmit. I hope that the conversations that we had today give you a degree of inspiration and insight 
into the experiences that another early career researcher, just like you, has followed in the process of writing up, revising, resubmitting, and having their first paper published. Hopefully from this conversation, you've had some greater insight and the process has been demystified. Thank you for listening to this episode. And if you'd like to listen to more episodes, you can follow us through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or most other podcasting platforms. A huge thank you again to Genus, the DSI NRF Center of Excellence for Paleosciences, for most generously supporting this podcast and the broader endeavor of engaging with early career researchers and helping them in the publication journey.